Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hey there, this is Dan Miller. Welcome into this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. Each week, I have the privilege of scanning through lots and lots of questions submitted by you, our listeners and readers, and I can choose some of those that are going to have application for lots of us in situations that we're in, try to find those that are not so specific. They only address one person, that being the writer of the question, but those that really have application for all of us. And you know, that's really the way it works. I mean, seldom are we going to find a principle of success that is only applicable in one area of life. I mean, I go to seminars and workshops more than anybody probably, and, and, and I go to even those that seem to be unrelated to what I'm doing as an author and career coach. I mean, I can go to a real estate seminar, and I'm going to pick up a couple principles of success where people there who are the top people in those fields are doing things that I can apply to what I'm doing. Now, this really is, is a principle that I hope you grasp. I mean, as you know, that I recently put together an ebook. You can download it for free, 48 low-cost business ideas. And you can go through those. It, that is not so you can find the perfect idea for you. It may not be there, but hopefully it will stimulate your own thinking to recognize something you could do that would be unusual, something where you really could put legs on and create significant income. That's why I want you to access your, to expose yourself to lots of ideas. Now, some of the questions we've got today, and we've got a lot of cool questions today, but, um, you know, somebody says he only has 11 more years in a job he hates until he can retire. You know, is that a bad plan? Yeah, I'll address that. Somebody wants to know how many bad ideas do I have? Talks about all the ideas that I do have, you know, that seem to work well. Or do I ever have a bad idea? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you how I approach that kind of issue. I mean, other questions have to do with how to develop a sideline uh, nursery business, um, how to protect an idea when you're going to talk to a company about it. We're going to be dealing with all of those. But back to the idea of looking at a list of things that you could possibly do. I mean, I ran into somebody not too long ago, who had, in fact, downloaded the 48 low-cost business ideas. And he went through those and he said, well, you know, that's fine, but I'm a technology guy, so there's nothing there I could use. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this guy's dead in the water. You know, no wonder he's working a piddly little job. Because how could he not see a list of ideas and out of 48 find 15 where he could apply his technology skills on top of it and make it better than what I described. But we got to quit thinking in such concrete terms and uh, the, the old can't see the forest for the trees kind of principle. Well, I know you're not one of those people that you probably have lots of great ideas and I hope you are doing things to uh, put legs on those ideas. Had a lot of questions this week about the podcast that some of the technology changes and I apologize for that. But if you have uh, looked at any of the 48 days sites in the last week or so, you'll recognize that we made some major, major changes. Now we have a lot of content. 
I mean, we have about a thousand pages of content out there, so it's not just the opening pages, but there's a whole lot of back end that needs to be changed. And and we've done that. We worked a long time to get things in place in advance, but then still, when the actual switch is thrown, so to speak, I mean, there are a lot of little things that we discover. And the podcast and links and how it's shown and the options you have. I mean, we have multiple ways that you can listen to a podcast. You can go to iTunes, as a lot of you do. You can listen to it right on our site. You can go to a site that Jody Smith has set up where you listen to each question individually. And there are a couple other options as well. And yeah, there were a couple glitches with how those were working. I think those are all taken care of now. And we should be back up to full speed. And we wanted to make it as seamless as possible, even though the look is totally different. There's a ton of new functionality. We wanted to make it as seamless as possible. And I think we're kind of on track with that at this point. Had a note from a, a listener who hears repeatedly people asking how they can expand and develop a photography business. Now, I love it when you, the listeners, submit new knowledge, options, resources that I'm not aware of. I mean, that's how I am able to provide better answers because I compile a lot of things that I read, hear about, and information that I get sent to me as well. But anyway, somebody suggested the book. This is a book. You can find it on Amazon. I went there and looked at it. Fast Track Photographer. The author is Dane Sanders. Uh, the foreword's written by Richard Bowles, who wrote What Colors Your Parachute. But Dane Sanders, D-A-N-E Sanders, the book Fast Track Photographer, it's doing very well on Amazon, so it must be a very popular book. And it was one I was not aware of. And if you're a photographer, you might want to check that out. Because I always admit readily that I think photography in this day and age is a tough thing to develop into a full-fledged business. Everybody's a photographer. You show up at a wedding and there are 30 people who have cameras there and they can take digital photographs. They can crop, resize. They can use Photoshop. They can re- change people. They can remove Ann Ethel from the photograph if they want to. And how do you make yourself unique in an audience where everybody thinks they are a photographer? So hopefully that book will help and I'll refer to that frequently. Had a question from Edley, who was uh, actually it was a voicemail question, and obviously a, a another language as the primary language, and it was very difficult to understand. In essence, he said, "I read Forty Eight Days to the Work You Love. What do I do next?" Well, I hope that that opens you up to the work that is the next part of the process where you do take a fresh look at who are you? What are your skills and abilities? What are your personality tendencies? What are your values, dreams, and passions? I mean, there's a whole lot of things to do where you then make the personal application. I mean, we know that knowledge is just simply the tip of the iceberg about anything. I mean, if you want to change your finances, you can learn how to do that in a day, but then doing it is where the hard work is involved. Certainly the same thing is true with 48 Days to the Work You Love. Getting the knowledge about there are better opportunities and how you go through the process and how you find the jobs that are never listed anywhere and how you find companies that haven't advertised but they could use your services. I mean, that's just all knowledge. But then the, the real, golly, the part that makes that come alive is when you do the work. Now, hopefully you can do that in 48 days and I lay out the process. But if you want to change where you are, do what I lay out in 48 days. And in 48 days from now, you ought to have new opportunities and be able to walk into the next season of your life. Well, Chris says, I recently read Tribes by Seth Godin. 
This summer, the NBA has been turned upside down with LeBron James and others deciding that they have the ability to form teams with any player they want. Former coaches, players, and fans are crying foul because LeBron is able to leverage his abilities and do whatever it takes to win. Is this a really good example of what Seth called being a heretic and looking where no one else is? Just something I've been thinking about as I read about bitter old players saying they would never team up with other superstars makes me realize I need to be more like LeBron in my business and not follow the crowd. Well, uh, that's a great commentary, and I'm not sure there's really a question there. But um, And I'm not sure you really want to relate yourself to what LeBron James did. I mean, I'm I'm not a, a sports buff, so I don't have all the inside skinny on that. I know there was a lot of resentment in Cleveland because he chose to leave there, but uh, I'm not sure that most of us wouldn't have done uh, the same thing, given an opportunity to leverage what you had done in I mean, it's just like working for a company. If you work for a company for five years and you realize that you're underemployed, you have positioned yourself where your abilities would command more in the marketplace. Most people are going to do a job search and move on. I mean, if somebody stays there, they're likely to end up resenting it. And frankly, if the company tries to talk them into staying there just because of a sense of loyalty or whatever, it's still going to lead to resentment. The person needs to be freed up to go on. So, I'm again, I'm, I don't have all the details on that. But I suspect that, yes, doing what LeBron did where you uh, carve your own way and link arms with people whose skills complement your own is probably not a bad model to follow. I'll, geez, I'll probably get... Tons of you who understand the situation better than I telling me I'm an idiot because I'm supporting what LeBron James did. Because, again, I know there are a whole lot of people that were angry and upset about that. I'm not quite sure how they can make a case for that, frankly. Well, this comes from Sam, who says in Washington, who says, Dan, I recently reviewed your 999 business ideas. And I linked to that, incidentally, at the end of the 48 low-cost business ideas where I developed those a little more thoroughly, but then I have a list where it just links to a list that a bunch of kids put together of 999 ideas, and you're welcome to take any of those as well and develop them. Well, Sam says, I like the idea of providing a mobile tool sharpening service. I have the necessary knowledge in most of the tools. My biggest question is how to advertise. I've thought of Craigslist, newspaper, et cetera, but I have no marketing knowledge. How can I get hardware stores, et cetera, to allow me to advertise? With that, okay, we're talking about a mobile tool sharpening service. So we're going to expect that to include uh, knives and uh, butcher tools and things like that as well. I would assume that those are all in the same category. If you're just saying tools and you're talking about hardware stores, I mean, to sharpen a rake or a shovel or a hoe, I, I doubt that there would be enough business there. I mean, I've had hoes that I've had for 30 years that I've never had sharpened. Um, I remember the old days with my dad, we used to put them in a vise and we would sharpen them because we use the hose every day. Whereas what I use today gets used maybe uh, eh, maybe uh, twice a year. So if you're going to be in a sharpening business, then look for who are your target audiences. Hardware stores may be part of that, but again, I doubt that that would be enough business to justify being in business in a mobile tool sharpening service. But I think you can look at medical offices beauty salons, restaurants, places that do expect to have extremely sharp equipment at all times. And I think those are places I know beauty shops have to get their scissors and their cutters sharpened repeatedly. They tend to buy pretty expensive things and you don't just use it till it's dull and then get rid of it. You sharpen it. 
So if you create relationships with those, and those are easy targets to identify, but I think that you're going to have more success with going directly to your target audience rather than through things like Craigslist and the newspaper. I mean, those are very generic ways of promoting, and your promotion is going to be seen by a hundred people where perhaps only one or two are even candidates for what you're doing. So that kind of marketing doesn't work well for something that's so specifically targeted as tool sharpening. So identify, I mean, if you, depending on where you live in Yakima, Washington, I don't know how big that is, but there may be 35 hardware stores in that arena. Well, that's pretty easy to target. You get them information, do something where you're contacting them at least once a month. This is a process called nurture marketing. In a service like this, you can't just get the information out there one time and think either they do or they don't. No, needs change. And when we're marketing something, the process of repetition works to create what we call top-of-mind positioning. So you want to have at least three points of contact for anybody that you would consider a prospect for you. So you may do that in terms of a personal visit, a brochure, a follow-up letter, But do something where you then develop a system where you may have 120 prospective companies. Create just a little system where they're going to receive something from you at least once a month. That's called nurture marketing, and that's how you develop an audience for the kind of thing that you're talking about. This comes from Rich, who says, Dan, I was laid off in 2008 by AES. I have a background in alternative energy and agribusiness. I also speak fluent Russian I've since started my investment bank consulting business in my basement from Des Moines, Iowa. Recently, a European alternative energy company who saw me structure a carbon trading transaction gave me an offer I could not refuse money-wise. I structured it into a one-year consulting agreement. The issue is they are requiring my life, and I want to balance things with other projects I'm doing. They now demand dedicated consulting as an employee, and this was not exactly my understanding in the beginning. And he goes through, you know, that he's gone a lot. He spends 28 days in Europe and 10 days in Iowa. And that's a tough cycle for his family. He says, but they give me six week off a year paid. So I guess I'm confused. My wife is behind this and does a great job managing the family. She wants to start working with the elderly. Um, okay, Rich, here, here's a couple of things. Now, this is pretty hard to understand if this really is a consulting agreement. Because if it's a consulting agreement, your work should be project focused not time focused when you're engaged as a consultant it's unusual that somebody's going to say we need you here 30 hours a week or 40 or 50 because it should be project focused if it's structured other than that then it better be extremely clear what your agreement is and it sounds like that was not done there was too much lack of clarity on the front end you need to go back and revisit that and i suggest you do that immediately to go back and refine the terms of your uh, consultant agreement. But the fact that you say they're going to give you six weeks off a year paid makes me think this really isn't a consulting agreement. They really brought you on as an employee. Now, this is where it gets kind of gray and muddy because if you are an employee, if they are requiring that you're there on their premises or working on their project a particular amount of time, you probably really are classified as an employee rather than a consultant or independent contractor. But as an employee, then they would be required to withhold Social Security contribution, other kind of taxes they would have to withhold and file for you 
it's to their advantage to pay you as an independent contractor. And frankly, I think it's to your advantage to be paid as an independent contractor. But it sounds like there's not clarity on this, that you're in a real gray area as to whether or not you're even an independent contractor consultant or are you an employee? I'd go back and revisit. What does this look like? Yes, being a consultant, you ought to have the privilege of being able to work on other projects at the same time. I mean, the way consultants make extraordinary income is if you are, this wouldn't be applicable in your situation or your example, but let's say that you're going to, you're a guy who creates a sales team model for companies. So you're going to do this for new car dealerships. So you go to a new car dealership and they say, yeah, we want to revise our sales process to just step by step to walk people through how to do this effectively. You say, okay, I see that as a $65,000 process. They say, okay, you go down the street and you talk to another uh, company there and they say, yeah, we want to restructure our sales process. We want it to be very clear. And you say, great, I would see that as a $65,000 process. And you do that four times. Now, you may have 85% of the work that is common to all of those. Now, this is not misrepresented in any way. That's why it's so advantageous to be a consultant, because you can coattail the work that you're doing on one project to where it works on another one as well. So you overlap projects like that, and that's why consultants can make a whole lot of, a whole lot of money. If a company requires you to be a captive consultant to them only and only them, then it really kind of pulls the wind out of being a consultant. So if that's true, then they better be paying you enough to justify that kind of time. And it better make up for all your benefits and your own insurance and retirement and those things that you're going to be making contributions of yourself. Because in essence, they're treating you as an employee, but wanting to pay you as a consultant. Well, hey, I hope that's clear. Again, I I love the consulting model, but it sounds like this is pretty muddied and is not a clear consulting kind of agreement. I mean, keep in mind the the divisions between these new work models that we're seeing are not just clear cut. It's not just black and white where you cross from one to the next. I mean, there are a lot of people who were employees who were then let go by the companies, and they're working now for the same company as consultants, where they work 30 hours a week instead of 40, where they're paid more, than they were previously because the change in benefit packages and all the back end things. I mean, and where everybody's happy with that. And then going from a consultant to an independent contractor or a independent sales rep or having a franchise or being an entrepreneur or a temp or an electronic immigrant. I mean, all those things are kind of soft descriptions of the new work models. And it's not just where you where it's like walking from, you know, water onto sand when you go from one to the next. Now, that kind of fine lines, and that should work to the benefit of everybody, both those paying for the service and those of you who want to be service providers. It's a changing work world out there. I mean, to think that we're going to hang on to the way things used to be and expect a company to pay you uh, just for showing up, you know, those days are over. I mean, you have to be real clear on what it is you're providing that has value anyway. And once you are real clear on what it is you have that provides value, then it's not a quantum leap to say, gee, what if I had five customers rather than just one? Or what if I had a couple of different industries that I represented rather than just one? I mean, these are soft lines and you can use that to your advantage. Again, no matter which side of that fence you're on, 
mean, I have no employees and I have a lot of people that provide very valuable services for 48 days. I love the way it's structured. Now, what that means is they aren't accountable to me for their time. Nobody, nobody checks in with me and tells me how much time they've spent. I mean, we just had some major things done on our websites, as I mentioned, major things that have uh, compiled a thousand pages of content, all the new functionality. They've integrated my blog, my podcast, our 48days.net site into 48days.com. We've got a whole lot of new things there. I mean, I have no idea how much time was spent in doing that. It's irrelevant. I, I don't know. And I really could not guess. All I know is that we agreed on the end result. And then those providing those changes went to work on it. I pay for the end result has nothing to do with time. Now that should work for their advantage as well as mine. So if they did that work and they made $200 an hour in doing it, Hey, more power to them. I agreed on the final project. If they in fact uh, missed the mark a little bit and end up making a uh, $10 an hour, then perhaps it's another story. Well, let me move on. Randall says, Okay, Randall's from uh, Iowa. I'm 51, been with the same company for 30 years. I have never liked my job. Can you imagine that? Now, he's 51, 30 years. That means he started work 21, at 21 years of age. 21 years of age. I mean, just wet behind the ears. I've worked for 30 years, has, has never liked my job. My pension from work will never amount to enough to really retire. So the question is, when should I retire? Should I put in 11 more years to reach maximum benefit or get out soon with less retirement money, but more time to build another income? So what do you think, listeners? He's been 30 years in a job he doesn't like. Should he put in another 11? So he has a total of 41 years in a job that he doesn't like to maximize his retirement benefits or should he get out and he's not making enough money to really have any significant kind of retirement anyway. At that point, 11 years, he'll be 62. Or should he get out now and try to find another way to make more income? Well, if you've been listening to me for uh, perhaps uh, a nanosecond, you probably know what direction I'm going to go with this. I can't imagine staying with something 11 more years when you're a grown, mature adult at 51 and recognize it's in something that you don't really enjoy and they aren't, aren't paying you enough. I mean, what other reason is there to stay in a position? You don't like the work and they aren't paying you enough. Why, how can you talk yourself into going in every morning? I, mean, I, I just don't get it. Now, of course, it's unfathomable to me to imagine 30 years already having been put in and something like that. Hey, I know that life happens. I know you may be faithful and other kind of family responsibilities, and you may be living in a town where your parents and your in-laws and all your kids are, and you want to stay there. But frankly, that's not enough to convince me that you have only one option in that town anyway. There are too many options to invest another 11 years. If you said that you were eight months from being fully fully vested in your retirement program, I'd say, you know what? You know, eight months goes by pretty quickly. Boom, just do it. 11 years? Absolutely. Now, the thing is about this, too, this does not mean that I'm a bridge burner. Just quit what you're doing and hopefully figure something out. Do the job search. Find out what your marketable skills are, what the compensation would be, where there's a place where you're likely to be plugged into work that's more meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. 
without jeopardizing what you're doing currently. Just do that. If at the end of that period of time, if you take 48 days and you really take a fresh look at who you are, what your strongest skills are, what your options are, and you decide, you know what? You aren't as undercompensated as what you thought. What you have now is a pretty fair package when everything is considered. Then just continue doing what you're doing. Hold your head high, but do it knowing that you're not trapped. The worst thing about the way you're framing your question is that you feel like, you know, there's no other options out there. That is absolutely 100% unequivocally not true. There are other options. Explore what the other options are, then make a decision. But I strongly suspect that if you really do an aggressive job search, you're going to find an option that makes a whole lot more sense than having to grind out another 11 years at something you don't really enjoy. Okay, this comes from Scott. Now, this is an interesting, well, he he references an article. Scott says, Dan, I just finished reading an article on the decline of the middle class. I would be interested in hearing your comments on this article and whether or not your No More Mondays business employment model is a solution to the decline of the middle class. As always, I appreciate your insight and publications, Scott. Well, thanks, Scott, for your, your question. I did go look at the article. The article has 22 statistics that prove beyond a shadow, and I'm reading this, that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the middle class is being systematically wiped out of existence in America. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer at a staggering rate. Once upon a time, the United States had the largest and most prosperous middle class in the history of the world, but now that is changing at a blinding pace. And it goes on to talk about how the middle class is disappearing. And, of course, the reason that's happening, and according to the article, is that the average jobs are being shipped overseas. I mean, why would somebody pay $25 an hour when they can get the same work done for $3 an hour in another country somewhere? But now listen to this. I'm it's still quoting from this article. What I mean, this blows my mind. What do most Americans have to offer in the marketplace other than their labor? Not much. The truth is that most Americans are absolutely dependent on someone else giving them a job. But today, U.S. workers are less attractive than uh, than ever. Now, this this is in an article where guys trying to make a case that this is a bad thing. The middle class is is disappearing. And really, he's looking for more government intervention. The government ought to prevent companies from going outside the United States to get work done. It ought to prevent them from, you know, laying people off. I mean, it's, I mean, where are we going to go with this? He's saying that the American workers don't have much to offer, that they, they really, you know, don't bring a whole lot of value to the table. But by golly, they need jobs and the companies ought to be forced to continue paying them for jobs. Now, what kind of real sense does that make? How could you make a case for that? I mean, what, what if you're running a business and you've got 20 employees and it becomes real clear to you that you're paying the people 10 times more than what you could get the work done for? I don't care if it's across the street or on the other side of the world. It just is what it is. I mean, we are in a flattened world, a global economy, and if we aren't competitive internationally, then something's wrong. I mean, we need to figure out how to be competitive internationally, how to do things better than anybody else in the world can do those. And we're going to have plenty of work to do. But if we think that we ought to force the government to force companies to give us jobs, I mean, what kind of an agreement is that? 
I mean, bring it down to a personal level. What if you have a 16-year-old teenage son and, you know, he says, well, gee, Dad, I'll mow the yard for 100 bucks." And there's some kid just left a flyer in your door that says, I'll do I'll mow your yard for 30 bucks. Now, the dynamics are going to be a little different there. But at the end of the day, who are you going to want to mow your yard? Now, unless you're just going to subsidize your son because you feel sorry for him or you know you're going to have to pay his expenses one way or another anyway, you certainly aren't going to use him even in that kind of a scenario. But what the, what the author of this article is saying is, yeah, this is a bad thing. We're, we're seeing a decline in the middle class. And so we had to have more government intervention to prevent that. And what we come down to at the end of the day is take from the rich and give to the poor. Well, that's a poor economic model and has never worked over a long period of time. I mean, it's fun to see the, the Three Musketeers and Robin Hood movies where the bad guys do that. It, it kind of gives us a, a rush to see that. But that's certainly not an economic model that holds up at all. You remove the incentive for the rich to keep producing and everybody ends up losing. So the justification, you know, the, for the status quo, preserving things that don't work. And we've got a lot of models of work in our country that just don't work anymore. I mean, be realistic. Paying somebody, guaranteeing somebody money for their time is a horrible business model. When I used to, you know, do seminars with the guys at the, at the Corvette plant up in Bowling Green, Kentucky. You know, and I'd see guys that, you know, came in late after a binge. They were tired. And so, you know, they'd put a wrench in the uh, in the assembly line and lock it down. You know, and so they'd have two hours to catch up on sleep. Well, they figured out what was wrong and fix it. No, no fingers pointed, no blame. And they'd go back to work after a couple hours. Or they'd throw keys over a fence so a car couldn't be moved. And it'll lock everything down because they would they were convinced they ought to be paid for their time, no matter how incompetent or how counterproductive they were. That's a horrible business model. At some level, everybody needs to be paid for their contribution to the bottom line, their productivity, the revenue generated. That's the only thing that makes a, a company survive and really ultimately the only thing that you can pay people for. That's why it's so easy for me to run my business as I do. I have no employees. Nobody's paid for time. Everybody is paid simply for results produced. It's pretty easy to assess. It's pretty easy to identify who did what, what revenue was bought in. You know, my daughter gets a percentage of revenue from our live events. I don't have to try to figure out how much time she put into making everything work and promoting and dealing with registration and getting catering set up and having materials run off and all that. She just keeps a spreadsheet on all that. And when it's all said and done, we see exactly how much revenue was bought in, how much exactly how much we had in expenses. Boom, we get a bottom line figure. She gets a percentage of that and it has nothing to do with her time. Some of our events are extremely profitable. Some are not. We don't go back and restructure or say, gee, I feel bad for you because on this one, you only made X number of dollars. Nope. It's identified in advance. And even though she's my daughter, that's what it is. Now, that works very well for her. Incidentally, I'll be quick to add. I mean, she she knows she's a, a, a favored child in having the arrangement that we do. But she does a great job, makes it very easy for me. But it's simply based on actual bottom line. And yes. The No More Mondays principles totally defy what this article is talking about. I mean, in No More Mondays, I talk about find what you're passionate about and turn that into a way to make money. I mean, that is the deal. 
And that's why uh, things like that, you know, there are things I ought to start using some of the ideas out of the 48 days or 48 low cost business ideas. You know, we've had a lot of fun with that. Um, That gets downloaded a ton. It's, it's free. Now it's one of those things. uh, Could I have attached a $39 price point to that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we, we could sell a lot of those. I mean, I have a big enough audience. We can sell, you know, quite a few of anything that I put out there, but I put it out there free I love the fact that it gets downloaded thousands of times every day. Now, are there reasons in there for somebody to then get involved in other things that we're doing at 48 days? Sure. It's chock full of those. Obviously, I use it as a marketing tool to expand our audience and our reach. And people do that. They get it and then they get involved in 48days.net or they come back to 48days.com and get products. And I love to have them involved in that way. But but here's an idea. One of the things I've got in there, I, I... the idea number three out of the 48 is a guy who does caricatures. So he does these little cartoon drawings of people. Uh, Joanna and I were invited to a corporate uh, Christmas event last year. And, you know, we had all the goodies that we were treated to while we were there. And one of those was the privilege of having a caricature done by this guy. His name is Tracy Latham. Uh, He had read 48 Days to the Work You Love, and it inspired him to go into his business full-time, and he does these incredible caricatures. They're really well done, very engaging, and yes, you know, a lot of people told him this was not realistic or practical, but he went ahead anyway, and now he stays booked at corporate events, birthday parties, conventions, conferences, and so on. Uh, He charges $100 an hour with a four-hour minimum for any event, stays booked months in advance. Some really funny things on his website. Um, There's a question, did you go to school for this or are you naturally talented? And Tracy says, I went to school to delay adulthood because I'm naturally lazy. Uh, Do you ever do other kinds of art? And he says, only as time permits. My mother's still waiting for that oil painting of ducks on a lake. But here's a guy. Now, how many people could do caricatures like this but how many people who have this kind of related skill are trying to be artists and have decided that there's no money being an artist you can't make it work well some of them may see this as a cheapening of the artistic skill or prostituting it in some way but tracy just simply saw an opportunity 100 bucks an hour for our minimum i mean how many of those do you need to book a day to have a pretty decent day so you do four hours. Now, most events book him for actually more than four hours. So let's say it's six hours that he's at an event during a day. He chit chats with people. He eats the food. He has a lot of fun. You know, he's not locked in any kind of time schedule or any kind of time for producing X number of caricatures. He just does it. But it might not love those kind of ideas where somebody just took a, a common skill, but just shaped it in a way that makes a lot of sense. Well, let me move on here. I don't remember why I made that U-turn. But anyway, I'm talking about the kind of things that I talk about in No More Mondays. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this disappearance of the middle class, you can put yourself firmly back in the middle class. Well, I don't know what we would define that as. Let's say that you want to, you know, that if you make $100,000 a year, you're making more than 98% of the people on the face of the planet. I mean, it thins out real quickly when you start talking about $100,000 or more. 
So that's not even middle class. If we talk about middle class, let's say that we're talking about forty to sixty thousand dollars a year. And I ought to get I ought to look up some definitions of that because I don't really know what we consider middle class. But let's just say that we've lost a lot of the jobs that previously were forty to sixty thousand dollars. Can you take an idea and put yourself back in that category? My goodness, a thousand times over. Of course you can. I mean, you can do all kinds of simple little things and put yourself back in that category. For one thing, let's just take a skill that you were using in a previous job that you had. So you were a graphic designer or an accountant or a computer programmer, or you were an HR person or in customer service, web design. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Keep in mind, the rule of thumb is for a company to have you on their payroll, your efforts ought to produce three to five times what they're paying you. So if somebody is paying you $40,000 a year, your efforts are not producing $41,000 for the company. That would be ridiculous to run a company in that fashion. Your efforts ought to be producing $100,000 to $130,000 in that example for them to justify having you out as an employee. So if your efforts, in fact, are generating $120,000 and you are no longer employed with that company, but you find a way to have five smaller companies that couldn't use you full time, but could use you one day a week to do the same kind of work. Is it possible that you can make $80,000 instead of 40 that you were making previously by working 30 hours a week instead of the 50 that you were working previously? I mean, yes to all the above. I mean, you really can do that. I mean, that's a realistic kind of transition. That's why when people lose a job and their immediate thought is, oh my gosh, I've got to give up the car, not go on vacation terminate our golf club membership. My thinking is, why would you think that? Why would you think that there is less when, excuse that, I didn't know I had my volume turned up and have a something alerted me to a new appointment and got a ding there. Apologize about that. Why would you think there's going to be less just because there's going to be a change? I mean, that again is just a very narrow thinking and certainly not a real reflection of what's happening out here in the world today. Well, speaking of ideas, here's an interesting question. This comes from Brad, (laughs) Brad in California. He left a voicemail, but it was kind of hard to understand. So I'm going to interpret it and just do a brief synopsis here. Essentially, he's saying that he hears me talk about a lot of ideas that I have. And he wonders if I've ever had a bad idea. I I about rolled out of my chair when I listened to his call. Do I ever have a bad idea? No, Brad, all my ideas are golden. They just come right off my brain, out through my mouth, and there's never a miss on any of those. No, trust me, that's not true. I should keep track. You know, maybe I'll do that for next year. Keep track of the ratio of bad ideas to good ideas that I have. I love having bad ideas because you know what? That's how you get to good ideas. I mean, really, the way to find a great idea is to have a whole lot of bad ideas. If you just eliminate everything and you're waiting for the one great idea, you're probably going to go through a whole lot of years of your life and never really have anything that makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, what you have to realize I mean, I went back, there was a, a recent blog by Seth Godin, who we mentioned a book of his just re, just a little bit ago. 
Seth says this, and I'll read a couple of sentences from his blog. A few people are afraid of good ideas, ideas that make a difference or contribute in some ways. Good ideas bring change, and that's frightening. So that's one thing that'll keep you from recognizing good ideas, because good ideas always are going to require change. Okay, now I'm ad-libbing here. Obviously, I'm not going to use this stuff verbatim. But many people are petrified of bad ideas, ideas that make us look stupid or waste time or money or create some sort of backlash. The problem, now this is Seth, the problem is that you can't have good ideas unless you're willing to generate a lot of bad ideas. Painters, musicians, entrepreneurs, writers, chiropractors, accountants, we all fail far more than we succeed. We fail at closing a sale or playing a note. We fail at an idea for a series of paintings or the theme for a trade show booth. But we succeed far more often than people who have no ideas at all. Someone asked me where I get all my good ideas, explaining that it takes him a month or two to come up with one good idea, and I seem to have a lot more than that. I asked him how many bad ideas he has every month. He paused and said, none. And there you see is the problem. Now, uh, part of that was Seth, part of that was my ad living. But, but I mean, that really defines it well. If you aren't having bad ideas, you're dead in the water. Welcome your bad ideas because you've got to get through those. I mean, just last night, I I called a friend of mine, and and he's a he's a client friend who recently went through a devastating business disaster. Had over five thousand employees, locations in multiple states. I won't I won't identify the industry, but he was a very high profile individual and lost all of that. I called him for advice on a sales idea that I'm working on because I know he's extremely sharp in that arena. And I got some really great feedback from him. Talked to him about an hour last night. I was standing out in the yard, watering well into the dark and talking to my buddy, picking his brain about that because he's had some major failures. And you know what? I respect his opinion about the good ideas more than most people walking around on the face of the earth out here. I probably have 10 bad ideas for every good. You know, I'm not sure I could even make that. It may be 15 or 20. I need to, I need to track that. But let's just, you can be very confident that I have nine bad ideas for every good one that I have. Now, do you hear about the nine? Perhaps not. And I have a business model where I can test ideas. I can test my bad ideas without sinking the ship. At this point, I wasn't always like that, but at this point I do. That's part of one of the things that I teach at our coaching with excellence live events here is how to build a business model so you can test your bad ideas without sinking the ship. That's a real important concept. So I do a lot of testing at any given time where I have core components of my business that continue and are going to keep the ship afloat, even if the bad ones don't survive. If the bad ones do great, knock it out of the park, we give them more prominence. So I have with multiple streams of income, what I use as a Venn diagram in my business, I have some leeway to test the bad ideas, but I welcome those bad ideas. I mean, I force myself by November 15th of every year, I have my goals set for the upcoming year. In doing that, I eliminate 15% of what I've currently been doing. Now, I I do that. I mean, I I have a formula for doing that. I eliminate 15% of what I've been doing. That means that I am eliminating, oftentimes, things that have done very well for me, things that make sense, things I could continue doing. But it forces me to eliminate so then I can introduce 15% of 
new things. Now, sometimes those new things don't have an immediate return. Sometimes they're very risky, don't have a proven track record. But it's in those new things being introduced that I've found those that ultimately really knock it out of the park for me. So I just ruthlessly go through and eliminate some things I've been doing, even if they're working well. So I force myself to try new things. And a lot of times those turn out to be bad ideas. But in the sorting through the bad ideas, the good ones emerge. And I encourage you to do the same. Well, let me grab a couple more here, but we're going through time quickly. Hi, Dan. I've read No More Mondays, 48 Days, Acres of Diamonds. Thank you, and God bless your family. Well, thank you. I have an idea I want to develop into a product for sale. My question is, when talking to prospective manufacturers, how do I protect my idea from being stolen? Well, let me answer that real quickly. You need a real simple non-disclosure agreement. I mean, you can just Google that and you're going to get something. As a matter of fact, I'll put, I'll put a link up for a free non-disclosure agreement under the link on podcast on our site where I have podcast links. I have resources there based on things we've discussed here. And I'll put up a, a link there that you can click right through and get a, a free non-disclosure agreement. So you can have that. But now keep in mind, you better have your idea pretty well defined. Or have a simple prototype of what it is you're talking about. Most companies think it's too complicated to talk to an outsider about a new idea. I mean, there have been so many lawsuits about people saying, gee, that was my idea. You developed it beyond my expectations. I want more money. I mean, most companies, it's rare for companies to look aggressively outside their own talent pool to find new ideas. You aren't going to find a whole lot of receptivity if you just have one idea for one new product out there, you're probably going to want to develop it yourself. But in doing that, protecting your idea is a very small part of the process. 2% of your, the process is protecting your idea, and so it's not stolen. 8% is identifying, does anybody even want this? Is this going to fill a need that's not already being met? Okay, that puts us at 90%. I mean, at 10%. 90% is left. 90% is, how am I going to market this? How am I going to turn this into money? And keep in mind, just great ideas in and of themselves don't make money at all. You need a plan of implementation if that's going to happen. Let me see where I am here. Well, let me, let me do one more. This comes from Jared. It says, Dan, I have passions, but they're random. Answering the if you could do anything question brings answers from me, ranging from finding classic cars for buyers to singing to becoming a mechanic to acting and so on. Help. Well, it's wonderful to have lots of things that you enjoy doing. I mean, what a wonderful place to start. The people I feel sorriest for are those who say, I don't have any passions. There's nothing I enjoy. Nothing really makes my heart sing. Nothing gets my attention. I mean, what a dull place to be in life. I can't imagine that. And certainly you need to stimulate your thinking. I mean, do something you haven't done before. Go someplace you haven't gone before. Read couple books on a topic. You know, go for a walk with a grandchild through a woods. You can't come out the other side without some new ways of seeing things and new ideas. But it's a blessing to have a lot of things that you enjoy doing. And, and I certainly share some of the things that you talk about here. I, I love old classic cars. I love remodeling. I love, we went to, took my grandkids, a couple grandkids here from Colorado last week. We went to a tractor pull. Well, I haven't been to a tractor pull in a while, and it blew my mind, the machines that came out of there. I mean, they have these truck frames with five Chrysler Hemi engines on them. 
four transfers, one straight line, 13,000 horsepower. I mean, when they go down the track, it rattles the insides of your body. The organs are moving around. The noise is so intense. I mean, I loved it. I get excited about all kinds of things that have to do with engines and power and cars and so on. But I've chosen what I'm going to invest most of my time in. I mean, that was just a choice. It doesn't mean that there aren't other things that I enjoy. You need to do the same. I mean, you can have 10 things that you really are passionate about. And that's, again, that's very cool to do that. But at some point, you're going to have to decide, this is what I'm going to invest my time in. Now, that does not mean that you eliminate all the other things. That doesn't mean that, wow, you've got a whole bunch of things that you're never going to be able to touch now. No, it just means your primary focus for the next two years or whatever is going to be this. This is what you're going to do. You have to have a plan and you ought to know where you're going to put most of your energies to make that plan work. But you can still have those other things that you, I still play with cars. I mean, I got a 78 Cadillac Eldorado Barrett sitting here in front of my office right now. I'm trying to debate what I'm going to do with it. I got an old 37 Alice Chalmers tractor that I'm still playing with. I love those kind of things. Hey, you can do the same. This is not to eliminate everything, but to make a balanced life, but still have a clear plan of focus for what you're going to do. Hey, have a great week. Your friend Dan Miller here. Join us at 48days.net or 48days.com for more information. Have a great week as you continue the path toward both meaningful work and a meaningful life.